Welcome to the Kaiser Human Performance Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to educate and inspire you to make the most of your journey in health and performance. Each episode will provide an in-depth discussion on a specific topic related to human performance. If you're a growth-minded individual seeking knowledge and better solutions, this podcast is for you. We're glad you're listening in and we're excited to learn alongside you. My name is Gabe Derman, and today I'm joined by Coach Danny Foley. Danny is a high-performance coach and injury management specialist. He spent six years as the head strength conditioning coach at Virginia High Performance, training Navy SEALs and Special Ops. He now coaches in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, working with athletes across all levels and specializing with populations battling chronic pain or injury. Danny is also the co-founder of Rude Rock Strength Conditioning, an online platform offering remote-based training and educational content. On today's episode, we sit down with Danny to discuss core training. He defines what training the core means and shares how working with injured populations led him to making core training a central focus of his programming. Danny highlights the different techniques of core training he likes to implement along with some of his favorite progressions. You can follow Danny on Instagram at danmode underscore rudrock, on Twitter at danny underscore rudrock, on YouTube under Rudrock Strength, and on his website, rudrockstrength.com. Enjoy today's episode. All right. Welcome, Danny. How are we doing today? Doing good, man. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Excited to sit down with you today and learn a little bit about core training. It's a term that is used by every single coach, trainer, or health professional, yet there's ambiguity regarding its definition. Two coaches implementing core training may be doing two totally different things. So, Danny, let's first begin by defining what is the core anatomically and what is its function? Yeah, so I think the, you know, this is one of the one of the conversations that we really just kind of get too wrapped up in the semantics. Um, there's phantom terminologies, there's differences in functional anatomy terms and and just in general the way that we perceive the body in motion um, as we've seen across the spectrum for many many years certainly as long as I've been in this field um, you know from the bigger name people in organizations they do things a certain way and then you see others that do things completely different and they both get good results I think that really describes core training in a sense that um, you know as you alluded to yeah everyone is training their core in some form or fashion I think that because of the the mainstream uh, physique-driven health fitness model that has kind of captured uh, the world really over the last 15, 20 years um, has, has skewed this a little bit, right? Because when we think about the core, we think about, you know, six-pack washboard abs. We think about, you know, the body fat distribution, things of that nature. But when we kind of, you know, selectively look at this in a performance context or in a, you know, more proper strength and conditioning athletic performance realm. The core is is essentially in my mind, really from the the shoulders to the mid thigh, and then obviously, you know, enveloping 360 degrees around the body. And I don't, it, for core training or otherwise, I don't see anything as 
these isolated muscle groups that, you know, we work independently and then, you know, those get better. And so everything else around it gets better. I just don't think the body really works like that. If you have a flat tire on your car, you change that flat tire and the car runs better. If you have weak obliques, you can't just selectively train the obliques and then all of a sudden the whole body gets better. There's much more of an integrated fashion to this. So for the, as it applies to the core, I really follow the myofascial lines and, and look to these, these lines to really kind of organize and develop what I would define to be core training. The core is primarily responsible for force transmission and, 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 and essentially just connecting adjacent parts. So whether we're thinking about a pitcher in baseball or we're thinking about a swimmer or we're thinking about a running back, all three of those athletes have different fundamental demands for sport, but each is going to need to have some uh, you know, level of core strength and, and core synergy. So if we kind of bring that down into a little bit more of a consolidated answer from shoulders to thighs, 360 degrees around the body, we want to think about coordinating and connecting the constituent parts. And it needs to do everything. It's not just flexion, extension, rotation. It's flexion, extension, rotation, anti-rotation, reciprocation, bending, coiling, evading, and connecting, and all these different things. So when we think about it, and I know we'll get into this a little bit more, but when we think about it in, a, in an exercise prescription or application sense, we don't necessarily need to think about core training as being this relegated, isolated thing, but rather how can we address and, and design movements and, and have certain you know, training parameters that are just going to accentuate that part of the body. Yeah, terrific. And what I heard from you is essentially if we're defining this shoulders to mid thigh, 360 degrees around, and really not necessarily isolated movements, but these more global coordinated movements. You use the term transmission there, and I've also seen you use the term transference. Can you just hit on those again, first starting with transmission? What does that mean to you exactly? I know you discussed connecting uh, joints and then transference. Can you talk about those two? Yeah, so I think um, pitchers and, and throwing athletes are probably the best representation of this. Um, your, your pitch velocity or your, your throwing velocity is much more driven by your lower body and your hip strength than it is your upper body and your arm strength. You know, sure, of course, there are factors at the shoulder and the arm that are going to be uh, significant here. But really, you know, it's it's how much power can we produce from the ground up, you know, through the hips, through the pelvic cavity that gets translated to the arm and the throwing action. So again, in my mind, it, it is, you know, really, that is a great demonstration or representation of the core where we have, again, these, these myofascial lines that, that tend to run uh, contralaterally across the body, and we want to be able to connect from the hip to the shoulder and vice versa, and being able to retain as much of that ground force that we are producing to be able to put into a throwing velocity. So the timing, the coordination, and the synergy of the motion is, is, almost, is almost equally, if not more important than just the pure ground reaction force and the pure um, throwing mechanics that are coming from the, the shoulder and the scap. Gotcha. So this question comes to mind then when I listen to you talk and, and you provided a great example of a pitcher throwing and where those ground reactions forces are starting and going through the body and eventually out through the fingertips and, and through the ball. Uh, how do you identify then where these leaks are happening? Obviously, you know, we're talking about core training here and, and it's potentially that, that this leak is happening at the core. Well, as a practitioner, how do you identify where there is a breakdown, where there is an energy leak? 
yeah, I, I'm probably not um, not the best person to to talk at length on this. Um, you know, I, I rely a lot on subjectivity and and coaching eye and and just you know analyzing how movement patterns are occurring. So you know, when we're talking about younger athletes in the developmental window, sixteen and under, um, I'm I'm pretty confident that ninety nine out of a hundred times they just got to get better at everything. So we're we're just going to assume that they don't have, you know, quote unquote, optimal core strength or um, stiffness or transference or whatever it may be. Um, they just kind of got to get better at everything. When we start getting into more of the college realm and then we work into that professional athlete realm, it gets a little bit trickier. And, you know, and again, like I mentioned, I'm not a, I'm not a huge data person. I'm not taking a lot of, um, you know, very refined specific measures. What I do utilize is, um, you know, for my first part of my assessment is just really kind of manual palpation. So, you know, can the hip internally rotate? Can the opposite shoulder internally rotate? Um, do we have some kind of a, of a non-functional asymmetry, you know, between isolated joint measures? Uh, I'll check manually, you know, kind of a anti-rotation or a push-pull, uh, you know, trunk um, assessment. And, and not often, but sometimes you'll see, you know, if we have like a right-handed pitcher, if I'm pushing on the right shoulder and pulling on the left, they're, they're rock solid, strong as could be. And then you go in the opposite direction and they got nothing. Um, you know, so some of those things can be like indicators for me, checking a bear crawl, you know, different kind of bridge patterns, plank patterns, uh, even for some of the elite athletes and, and, you know, guys and girls who look very robust, very strong. A lot of the times, some, some of those rudiment patterns will, will give them trouble. And then it's the same thing when we look at plyos. Um, you know, are they very strong and stable in a static position? But then when we add dynamic to it, do things start to break down? To me, that's an indicator that we're not transferring or sequencing that force very well. Um, and then similarly with movement complexity, can they do, you know, a sagittal based forward lunge with, you know, no issues loaded or unloaded? And then if we take that to adding a rotational component to it or a side bend, or maybe we're adding a separate second lunge to it. So going from forwards to backwards. Are there glitches in that? And those to me, again, are like the best indicators that we probably have some work to do. Um, and then the last thing that I'll say is just, you know, subjective reporting from the athlete. So if, I, if we stick with the theme here and we have a, a, a baseball pitcher and, you know, he, he comes in and tells me that, um, you know, the left side of his, his left oblique is chronically stiff. He gets, you know, kind of dull pain there and, and feels like he can't do X, Y or Z. Um, I'll just I'll take that at its value and, and just go ahead and, and, you know, kind of, um, you know, put that down as something that we're going to spend more time on. So a roundabout way of saying, uh, it, you know, there's a lot of different ways to analyze this. Even just a gait cycle, a sprint cycle can tell you a good bit. I think for the most part, most athletes in the, uh, you know, more on that upper end in college and in, and in um, at the pro level probably don't have very much like isolated independent core weakness but when we start to peel back some of those layers you'll start to find some things and then again for that younger population just assume we need to get better at everything absolutely so what i hear from you is definitely population specific right so sure. kind of yeah. what your assessment is going to be geared towards the population you're working with but a combination of things some manual testing relying on your coach's eye as well um, some movement screen type stuff, and then really a lot of movement-based stuff. You mentioned gait, uh, sprint, 
and plyos, right? You kind of get yeah. that some of those washing machine machine syndrome when you, yeah. you know, arms are yeah. flailing all around and and not so upright. Yeah, and you know, man, like to kind of just tack on to that too. Like I like everybody else in this field, I've gone through my different phases. You know, for for three years or four years, like the assessment was you know, 10 pages deep, and it was very, very, you know, myopic and specific. And I would go through all these manual tests and everything. And I would get to the end of the training cycle and be like, did that assessment protocol really change or, or influence what my training parameters were? And I got to the point where I was like, no, not really. Like, I don't need to have this extremely dense assessment protocol to be able to program and, and apply things correctly. So I've redacted down on that a little bit. Um, you know, I do, I actually literally within the hour, um, I'm getting a set of, uh, force plates delivered. So, you know, I think that the objective testing is of course significant and, and has uh, practicality, but when we talk about core specific training, and I get this a lot on the fascial stuff too, um, you know, coaches still need to be coaches. We need to be able to just analyze things for what they are and, and, and have good interpretation of movement and skill acquisition and being able to kind of see where some of those leaks are without having an iPad tell us what's going on. Right. And I like there that distinction that you made, like this is specific to core training. And this is the core training that you've identified. Hey, these are the areas that I'm actually defined as my core, yeah. um, which I think a lot of practitioners can naturally maybe skip. Um, and I think right. it's important to have that definition, which is why we let off with that. So you talked a little bit about your coaching evolution and like most human performance coaches, I'm sure you've gone through an evolution of not just core training and um, your systems, but philosophies and principles about training. Where along your career did you start to become really curious about core training? Yeah. So, um, so prior to getting to Texas, I've been in Texas for about a year and a half now. Um, I spent about seven years at a, at a private sector facility called Virginia High Performance. Um, and there we worked exclusively with Navy SEAL, Naval Special Warfare population. Um, absolute time of my life. I, I loved every second that I was in that building. Great people. Um, excellent program that we developed. So we were working with the, the elite of the elite military members and, and you know, men and women who had, had suffered in most cases, you know, pretty significant, if not catastrophic injuries. Um, but with that population, uh, seven or eight out of 10 are going to have lumbar or and or cervical compressive compressive fractures, um, disc degeneration. They're going to have at least, you know, two to three major orthopedic surgeries, a lot of labral tears in the shoulder, a lot of labral tears in the hip, uh, a lot of foot and ankle injuries. And so when you when you're exposed to that population, it is abundantly clear very early on that all of the bread and butter SNC 101 stuff just isn't going to work. It, it's not applicable to do a bilateral barbell back squat on somebody who's had three major back surgeries. Um, but at the same time, the majority of the people that we were seeing were, were still active duty and still had high, you know, demands for performance. Um, so it was not this, you know, pseudo physical therapy clinic where we were just treating them for their injuries. It was managing those injuries while trying to expedite them back into uh, performance. So, when we started to kind of break down the population that we were working with, and we, we started to kind of analyze what those KPIs and demands were, um, we just kept tracing back to improve core strength, improve core strength, improve core strength. Um, you know, so again, just to be clear on this, that that included more so a change in the training parameters, doing the same exact, you know, major movements, broad movements that we see everywhere else. And then just adding in 
you know, slight differences in how those are being performed, whether that's the way that it was loaded, whether that was the volume and intensity scheme. Um, but we found a, a pretty common thread. So we, we essentially did away with bilateral movement. Um, we did away with compressive forces. When, when you're talking about these, these operators, um, they spend the vast majority of their time under an additional, you know, 25 to 60 sometimes pounds, um, you know, through kit and through everything that they're wearing. So they're already exposed to a lot of compressive force. So we probably don't need to do any of that. Um, and then a lot of loss of rotation. They, there was a lot of unilateral deficits, you know, whether it was pure rotation or whether it was side bending um, or kind of coiling pattern, a lot of difficulties there. And, you know, as we went along, we, we started to do more and more, again, unilateral ro rotation, reciprocation, bending, um, and just kind of these different types of patterns. And before we knew it, back pain was going down. They could flex and internally rotate their hip. They didn't feel like they were, um, you know, kind of glitching in their gait. They were able to reach and move better. They felt like they were performing better. So that was all the evidence that we needed at the time um, to really kind of double down on that model. And that was really kind of the origin for me, not just for this core training conversation, but also again, you know, for the myofascial lines and for the fascial based training and you know, just seeing performance and strength and conditioning um, as much more of a blank canvas as opposed to this, you know, itinerary of we must do this, 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 and this. I, I, it, it really, for me, was eye-opening and refreshing because it made the job a lot more invigorating because, you know, again, I didn't feel like we just had to do this small set of things and then overload everything and then all of a sudden everybody gets better. It was much, much different. And the core training was absolutely fundamental to that. We, we really did put a priority on that. Um, and it was very, very valuable. Absolutely. A lot of great things there, especially um, liked what you said about the blank canvas and thinking about some other populations, right? You mentioned in Virginia working with these really specific populations coming back from military and rehabilitation. But then it sounds like you took these principles and said, wait a second, like this could work for everybody else. Absolutely. Um, yeah, man, it's and it's that again has been very refreshing for me because coming down here, um, I was under the impression that I was going to have this tremendous learning curve and, and have to kind of start from square one and work my way back up. Um, and in some cases that has proven to be true. But what I realized, man, was like there's a lot of similarity between elite level military and elite level athletes. Right. How many elite athletes have have had no surgical interventions, you know, after three or four years in the league? How many of them are not under, you know, tremendous amounts of stress, you know, and, and we go on and on. But from a mechanical sense, they have a very specific set of skills that they're, they're expected to be able to perform. They have to perform at an absolutely high level or they're going to be out of a job. And there's a lot of chaos. Sport is a microcosm of chaos. And it's when we one thing that does kind of irritate me is when we try to, you know, relegate or consolidate sports into being one or two movement planes, uh, you know, specific to one or two movement planes. Uh, baseball is a frontal plane sport. It's absolutely garbage. All sports are all ranges, planes, vectors of motion. It occurs at all kinds of different velocities. There's deceleration and acceleration components. And it's essentially, again, just this microcosm of controlled chaos. So as it applies to core training and elsewhere, I think that the way that I really have, 
you know, term this or look, look at it is that we need to improve the athlete's ability to tolerate variability. And if we can do that, it will give them a better platform to express their power, express their strength and express their skill um, with less restriction. Terrific. I mean, a lot of great stuff in there and, and appreciate that answer. And uh, I was thinking back to just some of the comments that you made about uh, reducing the compressive forces and and adding in more unilateral work and, and taking out maybe some of the bilateral with those specific populations, especially those where you're trying to reduce kind of that orthopedic stress. I mean, you're talking about being able to reduce absolute load, but still have a higher relative load. So I'm curious um, to hear about some of the feedback that you were getting from some of those uh, individuals in Virginia. Like it, it, all of a sudden they're saying, hey, this just feels really good. I mean, what, what was yeah. the feedback um, from those individuals and was there any pushback on like, Hey, I want to be doing these big, you know, multi-joint movements right now. So to the first part, um, the, the feedback was overwhelmingly positive and, um, you know, and I, I only, you know, I, I was a part of a puzzle. We, there were, there were several people that were, um, you know, contributing to this model, but that was by far the number one, most common feedback point was, man, I just feel better. I, you know, and, and I think that, you know, we can kind of tie in a second point to that is that it almost like reinvigorated training for them. And if you think again about the military community, like that training sucks, man, it, it is absolutely brutal. And it's, it's incredibly high in volume and intensity and, and the demands are really, really, um, you know, challenging. So, it, it kind of takes any of the joy of training out for them. And if you're constantly in pain, it, it just completely evaporates. Like training is perceived as a chore. So when we were able to kind of show them that, hey, you know, training does not mean you have to go run six miles or you have to do this bench press back squat, back squat you know, protocol or whatever. Um, there's a lot more versatility to this. I think that gave them a breath of fresh air. And then when you feel better, you perform better. It's it's very simple. Um, so, you know, I think that they were very appreciative of that sense. On the back end to the latter point, I can count on one hand. You know, there was there was a maybe four or five, uh, you know, kind of old school meathead type guys um, that, you know, really just wanted to just bang weights. And, you know, it, with athletes like that, um, I'm not here to, to necessarily tell you yes or no. I'm here to help guide you for what you want to do and what you find value in. So for those people, we, we, you want to do heavy back squat, heavy deadlift, let's, let's work it in, but I'm going to take the accessory block. I'll give you the primary block. Let me run the accessory block and we'll compromise on that. Um, so just kind of filtered it, filtering it in on the back end, and, you know, letting them have their cake and then, you know, me kind of just guiding it from that point. Love it. A moment ago, you just said, really for you, training and core training is about improving the athlete's ability to handle variability. So I want to dive a little deeper on that. And by that, I mean, improving the athlete's ability to handle that. How should we train the core? So I, I think a good starting point is locomotive and, and groundwork. Um, you know, if we think about just at a very broad 10,000 foot view, what are the, the most mundane, basic fundamentals, fundamentals or functionalities of the human body? We, we need to be able to move. 
um, you know, evolutionarily, if we can't move, we can't kill, we can't kill, we can't eat, we die. Um, so we need to be able to move. And then being able to evade or, or get up and down off the ground, being able to, you know, maneuver um, in a reactive sense um, is, is another one that for, you know, again, like life and death purposes is very important. So in the training setting, um, all different kinds of carry variations, all great for, for uh, you know, my, in, in my opinion, um, you know, different kinds of like coiling and bending patterns, you know, for so like for farmers carries. Um, we can carry heavy, we can carry light, we can go high, we can go low, single, double-sided. Um, but with the coiling and the bending patterns, these are going to be much lighter in load. And we're focused more on, um, you know, again, the integration of the, the extremities and, and the different components of the body. For the groundwork, um, uh, kind of an underlying benefit to groundwork is number one, the sensory motor response that we get. Um, having hands and feet interacting with the ground, um, you know, having the, the, the skin contact with the turf uh, being kind of a sensory stimulus for us. And then I think another thing that gets overlooked about groundwork is how it, you know, kind of works to unload the spine. Um, so for people who do have, uh, you know, nonspecific back pain, or maybe you've had a couple of back surgeries, um, being in that all fours position or almost like in a simulated dead bug position is actually unloading the spine and helps, you know, with not only just the structural aspect, but also getting fluid, um, you know, through that region and, and just kind of detensing some of those smaller supporting structures. So those are the good, the best starting points in my mind. Once we work out of that, that's where I'm going to go to more of my cable, my Kaiser, my band, my landmine. Um, we're thinking kind of static, more structural based, you know, one, maybe two movement planes or, you know, small combinations of things. Um, but anything from any chop pattern that you can, you know, come up with or imagine um, to more of like transfer movements. So I like a lot of like push pull options. Um, those are all great, all foundational. And again, what we're doing here is we are really trying to teach the connection or the integration from hand to hip. And from hip to foot. Um, so for rudiment athletes, for younger athletes, a lot of the times that's actually very challenging. Um, their, their kinesthesia is still so low. They don't really know, you know, kind of how to coordinate all of these different parts. Um, for athletes that are on more of the developmental side, that's a little bit of an easier process to teach through normally. And then finally, from there, that's where we're going to go into more of our dynamics and more of our high velocity um, and almost plyometric based movements. So I get a lot of value out of kettlebells, uh, med balls, um, any kind of projectile object, uh, still utilizing a lot of cable, a lot of, a lot of Kaiser, landmine, um, just doing some of those similar patterns with higher velocity, a little bit more complexity. Um, and then really, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the, the one, two, three step there. But again, you know, it's, it's not anything that's, uh, really, you know, specifically isolated must do these ratios of movements. It, it, it's different for everybody. So if we can move, if we're locomotive, if we can get up and down off of the ground, we can bend and we can kind of, you know, ro rotate or reciprocate. And then we can put that, those same actions uh, in motion under velocity. I think you're going to check almost every box that you need. Fantastic. I mean, you laid out really your classifications and your progressions really nicely there. Um, I appreciate that. Starting with the locomotive, evading, then getting into some of the carries, coiling, 
uh, uh, ground-based stuff and then into your cables um, and, and landmines and then really more into the dynamic movement. So I appreciate that. Where, you know, I, I hear a lot of professionals and a lot of strength coaches will say, yeah, you know, we deadlift heavy, you front squat heavy. That's the best thing for your core. Uh, where do those fit in, in terms of how you see core training? I know that, that you said earlier, like, Hey, this is a part of our training. This core training is just a section of it that we really value, but does deadlift and squatting, like, does that also get filed into these dynamic movements for you? Is this a part of your core training or you just put that kind of in a separate box? That is a separate box for me. And, um, you know, I try to be pretty neutral on, on most things. Um, you know, I guess, which is kind of unpopular now. I'm not very uh, polarizing or, or uh, confrontational. However, uh, deadlifting and front squatting is not the best thing that you can do for core training. It, it, it is not. Those are structural compound loads. I do those things. I load them heavy. Um, but that is something that I see uh, being its own kind of thing. It's, you know, we're going to deadlift because we're going to deadlift because it's a good, you know, total body, um, you know, total body slash lower body um, push pattern, right. We're going to squat for the same concept. So <clears throat> I think about this kind of like the SAT, the, the SAT is not a good indication of your general intelligence or your ability to succeed in college. Your SAT represents your ability to take the SAT. So for heavy deadlifts and for, for heavy front squats or whatever the exercise may be, those are not good demonstrations of core training. Those are good demonstrations of how well you can deadlift and how well you can front squat. No more, no less. They don't translate to sport. They don't make you a better pitcher or a better basketball player. They make you stronger at those movements. The Not to get off on a tangent, but like the same people who champion those types of things, You, if you're not front squatting 140% of your body weight, then you suck and your whole training is worthless. Um, are the same people who ignore the fact that the amount of force that you can put out on a squat or on a deadlift is going to eventually be limited more by skill than a muscular capability or power or strength. So if you were, or if you were going to just purely seek or chase max lower body force expression, well then go do an isometric leg press, right? Or, or go do a, an isometric mid thigh pull because the force capability on those is going to be much higher than in a front squat. In a front squat, you're going to be limited by the technique or the skill of the movement before you reach what you're actually able to produce with your legs, right? Even 500-pound squatters can leg press twice that. You can go up over 1,000 pounds. So if we're trying to just purely load the legs, go do that. But getting off of my high horse here and getting back to the point, I think that stiffness and, and being able to have, um, you know, a, a good connected pillar or core for those movements, cool. Yeah, we're getting a little bit out of it. We're getting some thoracolumbar extension. It's not to say it's a bad option, but um, I would argue that a a heavy, uh, you know, Hatfield split squat is going to be more core demanding, quote unquote, than we see in a in a you know conventional front squat because of the flexion extension pattern at the pelvis and because of the rotational mechanics that are going to be applied during that split pattern. Um, the last thing that I'll say on that is, um, oh, the, the other aspect of, um, core training that, you know, within this context is that everything is pre-tensioned in a, in a deadlift or a front squat. So you are going in for one rep, it's a 98% or it's a hundred percent rep. I'm going to go in belt or no belt, but 
I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to brace. I know the amount of time that I'm going to be under tension and how long this movement is going to take. And then I'm going to finish the movement and I'm going to release. If I'm a wide receiver and I'm running a slant route and I turn towards the quarterback to catch the ball and then I turn and I have a safety coming full speed to take my head off, I don't have that opportunity to consciously pre-tension and brace my body. I just have to be able to do it. So if I take a 20-pound med ball and I have somebody who's anticipating the catch and I throw the med ball in as fast as I can and allow them to recoil and then snap back, there's more of a reactionary or a reactive element to that, which, again, I think is a, is a fundamental feature to this core region that we don't necessarily get in things that are prescriptive. Absolutely. And that ties back to the chaos element yes. of performance that that you had mentioned earlier and the ability to handle variability. Um, so well said. And also a great tangent. I mean, talk your game. <laughs> <laughs> talk your game. So um, a question that I have then is with that in mind, I feel like I might know the answer, but I want to ask it. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it, uh, do you think that so many people and coaches are still programming these isolated exercises, these heels, elevated crunches, single leg crossover crunch, decline bench. Uh, I'm going to speak for a second on my own coaching experience, uh, strength yeah. conditioning coach uh, for a while. And I put these kind of towards the end, a couple of these exercises, we had our chop variations that are part of our primary blocks or accessories, but towards the end, you know, I, I worked with baseball players. Uh, I worked with a lot of other types of athletes too. And they see this through media, through some of the physique outlets that you had mentioned, um, and I, I finished with it. I didn't really place any much value or importance on it. Um, but I knew that mentally these athletes enjoyed it. And I had it at the end because when they walked out of the room, yeah, they're kind of lifting their shirt up a little bit, checking themselves out. And I knew that was good for their psyche. Um, yep. so as you see this, why are people still programming it? Is it for that reason? Do you think there is some value still with some of those isolated movements? <clears throat> so without coming across as, as arrogant here, I, I I think that people have a really difficult time challenging what they believe to be true. And with strength and conditioning especially, it starts with this underpaid, overworked, underappreciated complex that we all live within. So if you are in the public sector, especially if you're at the university level, you're at a high school, you're in a pro organization, your job is inherently unstable. In 99% in of cases, very rarely does somebody get into, into one of those positions and is like locked in. That's the guy, that's the girl. We don't have, you know, there's no question about who's going to be filling that role. So I think because of that, we are kind of clinging to dogmatic practice because if we do what is said to be done, then we can go to our superior and say, hey, I did what I was supposed to do. I don't know why this person got injured. I don't know why we underperformed this year. This is what we're supposed to do. As opposed to if they look outside of that box too far and they do something that isn't you know, more conventionally understood or applied, then they become vulnerable to lose their job. Whether it was right or wrong, whether it had anything to do with whether whatever the situation may be, um, it, it makes them look bad uh, potentially um, you know, in something like a, an annual review period. So I think that's fundamentally the, the biggest problem that we face is that we are reluctant or hesitant to challenge status quo or to, you know, analyze how we can do things slightly differently um, because we're all just 
you know, again, living paycheck to paycheck and trying to do everything that we can with the 12 minutes of free time that we have throughout the day. Now, for myself being in the private sector, and this is exactly why I, I am and will forever be in the private sector and, you know, run my own business, um, is because I change my mind all the time. I'm, I'm constantly evaluating things and, and, you know, analyzing what's being done and seeing how, you know, the response and the, the outcomes are to these things and, and just constantly refining that. I have equal influence from, you know, people that are classified as functional coaches to sprint coaches to physiotherapists. And I just, I'm like a, a master generalist. I want to take a little bit of everything from people that I think are doing a good job um, and then kind of recreate it as my own. Getting more directly to your question here, as this applies to core training, I, I would say that, you know, with like the, uh, the example that you gave, if you have the, you know, your athletes doing a couple of heels elevated sit-ups or, or, you know, twists or whatever, you know, kind of, um, you know, functional based core training movement. No, it's not doing any damage. I, I would argue it's probably not really helping anything, but that confidence point is fundamental, man. And that's, that's very, very important. So if I carve out eight minutes at the end of a session and do some flexion extension based abs um, and kids are kind of, you know, pulling shirts up and feel like they're getting, you know, something out of that. I can definitely think of worse things. It's kind of similar to foam rolling. Like everybody gets all bent out of shape about foam rolling. It's the greatest thing in the world or it doesn't do anything. It's like, man, it's six minutes of our time. People feel a little better when they do it. What's the big deal? Um, I could make an argument or challenge people to, you know, look to take that eight, 10 minute window of, of, Hey, we're going to do some abs today to, to, you know, switch out some of those types of movements. Um, but I don't think that it's significant in either direction enough to where, you know, we need to have an intervention on it. Right. Um, but you know, again, I think with like situations like that, get on the ground, crawl around, roll, tumble, carry something and and do you know some isometric variations that that simulate those patterns um and and you'll get kind of that same response from the athletes with probably a little bit more roi um from a from an applied sense awesome terrific i'm just thinking about some of the programming that i did and i know the evolution of it i used to you know say okay well i have like we're doing this tricep we're doing these poles okay that, that means i can do this you know, much of biceps and, and forearms. And then those things started to disappear in year two, year three. My baseball guys go, hey, coach, like, why, why aren't you programming forearms anymore or or abs? I'm like, you guys go to the rec center right after practice and you guys go rip them anyway. I was like, I don't need yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, good point, good point. Like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I 45, I mean, 50 minutes. <laughs> dude, but that's the thing though, right? Is that the, we, we are all, limited by the same thing and that is time and and contact right so even if you're in an optimal situation where you see your athletes five days a week and you get an hour maybe even 90 minutes um per session that's still only five hours out of 168 in the week and they're doing all these other things you know the challenge on the private sector side is you know not only is frequency and time driven or, or limited by you know somebody's ability to pay for it but also I'm one of six people that are doing something with this athlete. They have their high school team. They may have a club coach. They have a position coach. They got a speed coach. And then I kind of play this strength injury role. So for me, it's, you know, much less driven by here are the big rocks. Here are the fundamentals that we have to do 
Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're doing these lifts. Tuesday, th for me, it's more, okay, let me see the puzzle. How, you know, where are the pieces arranged right now? Where are you spending your time? And then where can I come in and kind of fill these cracks? So for me, it's probably why, you know, I, I, I might look like I'm trying to always post and produce things that are super nuanced or, you know, unconventional or whatever, but really that's just what I'm doing. It's just a representation of my work. If I have a kid who lives with his high school team five days a week at 6 a.m., then he's got practice at 3.30, then he sees his skills coach on Tuesday, Thursday evenings, and I see him on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Well, yeah, we're going to spend a hell of a lot of time on foot and ankle, hip internal rotation, core work, and, you know, some of this kind of ambiguous fascial line stuff. Um, because that's what's needed right now. They, they're already doing everything else, you know? So that time allotment is really the most important thing to consider. And if you can, you know, you if you will get better at coaching and what you do, <clears throat> excuse me, um, through improving your efficiency of programming and exercise selection more than anything else, it will absolutely change um, the value of what you're doing more than anything else is being efficient with that time allotment. Absolutely. You mentioned filling the cracks, which listen, resistance training and, and training in the weight room by nature is filling the cracks. Yeah. Like their yeah. skills coach session playing their sport is the most important thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's great to have that approach and be willing to say, Hey, this is what we have planned today, but you know, I haven't seen you in a few days or, you know, you missed a week because of spring break or, you know, Tell me about all these other things that are going on and really leading with questions even to start your session to then be able to make decisions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and you know, and this is some an area where I, I still have a small sample size, you know, it's not a tremendous history here. Um, but this, this also did apply with the military guys as well. But when you, when you get to the, the elite level and, and like the pro level athletes, um, that lack of visibility and lack of predictability is amplified by 10. Um, the communication is tougher. The, you know, again, the visibility of schedule is, is tougher. They're in town and you think you, you got them for three weeks. And then on day six, they no show and you call them. They're like, Hey, I had a thing come up in Miami. I'll be back in six days. So yeah. that, that forecasting and that, you know, being able to kind of project out of, of what we are going to do and having it dialed into a T, you know, again, at least in, in the position that I'm in or the experience that I've had very, very rare. It's, it's very rare that I get a chance to just say, okay, I know I'm going to see this, this guy or this girl four days a week for the next eight weeks. We can put it all together. Just doesn't really happen for me. So being adaptable and, and being able to analyze the situation and all these constituent parts, and then being able to just kind of, you know, fill in from there is, is, has been critical. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. So pivoting back to core training, uh, you mentioned earlier landmines, you mentioned Kaiser, uh, are there any tools out there that you've found to help augment this core training and really how have you found them to be beneficial over maybe some other uh, tools? Yeah. So I don't think that there's any, any like specific demand for this or for that kind of feeding into what I was just saying uh, a second ago. I, I train out of legitimately like five or six different places right now. Um, some of them I have Kaiser, some of them I don't. Some I have a landmine, some I don't, uh, some have heat and air, some don't. Um, so, you know, I, I've had to kind of open my purview up a little bit um, and just utilize what is there. So to start, I don't think that there's anything that is inextricably must be performed or can't be performed. Now, by default, 
I absolutely love the landmine. Um, that has been a central tool for me for a very long time. And it's it goes back to the words that I'm going to repeat a million times over here. But the versatility, the open chain, the, the demand for intrinsic stability, um, and the demand to coordinate and sequence movement are all premium things for me for core training. Um, Kaiser, cables, any kind of iso-inertial, um, you know, it, it, it just allows me to move in very specific planes or very particular directions. I can do combination movements, um, you know, again, push-pull, reciprocating and bending actions. And then I get a lot of value out of like, uh, like I really like Vipers. Vipers are great for kind of that movement flow and, and just loading different movement patterns. Um, so I'll do a ton of different variations with that. Uh, but you can utilize, you know, like, so for example, with the Viper, if you don't have access to a Viper specifically, you can take a kettlebell or a dumbbell and essentially, you know, apply the same things. Um, I will say a landmine is a staple for me. That is one that I would say, um, you know, virtually anybody should invest in. It's cheap, easy to store, um, and, and just an absolute abundance uh, of things that you can do with it. And then the body, right? Like, you know, you using the body for positional isometrics, using uh, different wall patterns, like um, a good example there would be like a single arm uh, crawl isometric using the wall. So getting down into a really low deep flexion angle um, and, and just having a single arm hold, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds, uh, picking a leg up. So now we're single arm, single leg, um, doing that with a little bit of different angulation. Um, so you can be as creative as you need to be, depending on what your resources and accessibility are. Um, but those would probably be the things that I would, I, I would say I most commonly program or prescribe. Awesome. And I know it's a podcast and, you know, it, it's all audio, but let's try to provide maybe as much value as we can and, and give some people some practical take homes. Uh, you already mentioned already this this classification of these groups of exercises and your progressions that you go through. Um, I'm curious to know, like, let's go through a specific exercise. I'm an athlete. It's day one. Hey, Danny, Coach Danny, it's really nice to meet you. You know, my name's Gabe. I'm a basketball player, 15-year-old. Um, okay, we're, we're starting with maybe some of the ground-based movements and, and crawling patterns. Where do you start? Yeah, so for the crawling patterns, um, I, I, I just like the, the four-way crawl. Um, it, it, you know, again, I, I try to minimize the amount of time that I have somebody uh, in an in evaluation or in an assessment uh, setting, right? I, I don't, I don't want to spend a full session or, or, you know, too much time on, hey, we're going to analyze every single aspect of your body right now. So make sure you dress up everything and, and don't let me see any weakness, right? I just want to kind of get them going and then use that as an evaluating point. So the four-way crawl, allows me to see scapular action. It allows me to see reciprocating or, or contralateral actions. It allows me to see, um, you know, lumbopelvic control and stability. It allows me to see bending the foot. Um, and then doing that in different directions just allows me to see those things in different ways. Uh, for athletes that are in that 15 to 18 window, uh, I'll, I'll throw some rolling in there. Um, you know, I'm certainly far from a, a tumbling expert, but, you know, can you just kind of handle many bouts of little chaos? So we'll do like a one, two, three crawl into a forward roll, get right back to the crawl. One, two, three, forward roll. Lateral crawl, one, two, three, side roll, get right back to it. One, two, three, repeat. Um, so that's just something that, you know, again, just adds a slight amount of complexity to it. How can they orient? How can they reposition and restabilize themselves? Um, of course, we're looking at, you know, the extensibility 
can the how far can the arm reach overhead does the scat move with the arm uh is there contralateral hip drop when we see that right arm reach um crawling is fantastic for that bridging is another one um you know, I think with with core training, again, going back to where we started this whole conversation with, we're driven by dogma and, and kind of outdated practices. So we think core, everybody automatically assumes it's anterior uh, based. Uh, posterior core is more important for nine out nine out of 10 athletes, um, you know, for the sake of sport application. So um, crab bridging, hamstring bridging, different glute patterns. Um, you know, I like L-sits, kind of some of that gymnastics influence. Um you know, those, those types of things, uh, just kind of being segmental and then doing them in either isometric fashion or with some kind of a tempo application to it. Um, all those are very good adductor bridging, same thing, you know, just short bridge, long bridge, opposite leg inflection or extension, doing that from different heights, um, gives me a good, good evaluating point. And then on the carry side, I, I really don't have a specific like kind of workup that I do on carries. I, it's a little bit more intuitive, but for a young athlete, like a 15 year old basketball player, I'm probably less concerned with like, can you do carries with eighties for 20 meters? And like, I, I don't necessarily evaluate that. Um, but I do absolutely uh, distinguish uh, two things. Number one, normal gait moving forwards and then moving backwards very important and then i will do it as more of like a marching type pattern um so i'll have them walk down normal gait and then uh normal walk back and then we'll go into a march forwards and backwards and the marching being exaggerated gait actions i think just kind of uh you know sometimes exposes some things that they can cover up in a natural gait uh we can kind of pick out when we see them in a marching pattern um and then i call them short lunges so a lunge for the sake of trunk movement, not necessarily for the sake of leg action. Uh, so rather than seeing like the 90-90 front leg, back leg, uh, arbitrarily will be closer to like 45-45, um, but I'm adding something to it. So is that a, a you know forward rotation? Are the hands crossed? Are we holding something? Is that a lateral bend? Is it a back reach? So a lot of different lunge variations at that short angle. Yeah, I'm thinking about those short lunge angles uh, with the Viper maybe mixed in. Oh, yeah. Uh, that can definitely expose them. Even holding the Viper out in front versus close to your chest. I mean, that could even expose a lot of stuff right there. For sure. Yeah, longer lever arm means more torque on the joint. So, you know, especially mm -hmm. if we have something specific that we're looking at, that lumbopelvic complex, if they're, if they're stiff in the thoracolumbar junction, absolutely holding it out in front or overhead is going to challenge that. Um but yeah, those are the, those are probably the big rocks. Um, and again, it's, you know, it's not just specifically analyzing like, you know, oh, well, when they're in their gait, they have excessive anterior pelvic tilt. Like those things may or may not be true, but, you know, again, as we, as we correlate that to sport, if somebody has anterior pelvic tilt, but they were an all statewide receiver last year, I, I don't know that that's necessarily something that we need to see as diagnostic. I want to just see how, changes influence movement and then how does that influence what they do right i mean that is evident if you've ever worked with a youth basketball player and you ask them to do this slow, this slow marching <laughs> slow marching forward like yeah it's gonna look messy especially the slower yeah. you get yep um yeah but... tempo tempo changes um create great great differences in outcome right um as we've all seen um but you know again like and i'm pulling from um you know, my, my guy, Stu McMillan here, but 
uh, one of his quotes is, uh, you know, when they're young, when they're in that developmental window, when they really haven't done anything or, you know, achieved a ton on, on the sports side, we want to shove in terms of influencing position pattern and shapes. Once they reach that point where they're excelling at their sport, they're, you know, playing or performing at a high level, we want to go to more of a nudge. I don't want to just change things because I think that they're inherently good or bad. I want to observe them for what they are and then contextually to where they are in their sport timeline, that's going to influence or determine how much positional and postural changes we're necessarily uh, aspiring for. That's awesome that you just said that. We, in a recent episode, we just had Randy Huntington, longtime track coach. Very cool, yeah. Uh, Olympic track coach on. And he was talking about his coaching eye and where he started with coaching. And he said that he purposefully began with women's gymnastics. Interesting. So that he could learn to just watch movement and train his body to see movement. But the term that he threw out there was shapes. He says he sees coaching in shapes. Yes. Um, so that really just stuck out to me there when you, when you just said that. Taking this now maybe a step further, and I know we just kind of hit on some of the ground-based stuff, bridging, uh, carries type stuff. Let's get into maybe some of the examples of cable-based exercises. Uh, I'm now, let's say, working on a Kaiser, um, and now I'm going through chop progressions. Where do you begin with chop progressions? So we we want to kind of follow a similar schematic where we want to work from static and more isolated options to dynamic and more integrative options. Um, and that's something that I apply pretty much unanimously across the board for all, all things training. Um, so if we are just gonna go through a generic uh, progression route here, um, I'll start with a high-low chop, uh, probably with more of a fixed handle. Um, you know, the reason for high to low is they're working with gravity, um, which is generally just a little bit easier for them. And we'll pivot through the back foot, but we won't have any movement in the forward leg or in the front leg. Um, so just a standard high-low chop. What I will most likely do, and in most cases from there, is probably drop the arm down so that it's more of a parallel pattern or, or more like chest level, kind of coming straight across the body, keeping everything else the same. And then we'll probably work from low to high um, in the same fashion. Then we'll kind of go back. So let's say next week or two weeks down the road, We'll go back to that high pattern, but instead of it just being a fixed handle, fixed front leg, rotate through the back hip, now I'm going to kind of add almost like a recoil in the start and then step with the front leg and then sweep with the back leg. Um, maybe we change the implement. We go from a solid bar to a rope, um, you know, because again, just trying to remove some of that external stability for them. Um, and then we'll go same, you know, same progression again, where we'll, we'll come down middle arm and then low arm. Um, working from low to high and then from there it kind of goes to progressing through complexity so uh, if we stick with the same example I have two arms on or two hands on the rope and I start um, with that kind of recoil step sweep uh, coming across the body maybe now I start with just a or, or working with just a single uh, cable handle I start with just that outside left arm start and initiate the chop transfer to the right hand and then finish with almost more of a pressing action we nice. can then add a lunging pattern to that. Um, you know, so one of actually my favorite variations specifically using the Kaiser um, is essentially doing a curtsy lunge into a lateral lunge with a chopping action. So to give people a visual here, 
Um, I have both hands on a single cable handle. Um, my left shoulder is, is away from the, uh, the Kaiser or the cable. I'm going to initiate a cursey lunge by taking left leg behind the right hip. I'll recoil the trunk with that back step and then a drive out with the left foot into a lateral lunge and extend across the body towards that left uh, foot knee um, as I go into that end range of the chop pattern. So now where we started with just static, isolated, high-low chop, three or four weeks later, we've done five different variations, and now we're doing a cable curtsy lunge into a lateral lunge with a chop, uh, chop application um, applied as well. So that to me is just, a, uh, you know, what I call layering, right? Like I, I, I seek slight differences with, with the same general movement quite often. Um, I don't need somebody to be able to high-low chop uh, X amount of resistance or weight. I need people to be able to transfer their weight and move through different vectors at different resistances with different velocities and being able to do that with uh, different patterns or positions. So um, you know, rep without rep concepts apply, uh, quite significantly here doing the same thing slightly differently. And as a byproduct, just generally increasing that load of resistance as we go along or supplementing it with, with more deliberate velocity movements. Appreciate the detail, uh, uh with the visual that was really helpful. And uh, I'm just thinking about this here. I mean, the, really the, the variations in exercise selection are really endless. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like just simply swapping out handles and the effect yeah. that a certain attachment um, can have is great. And you, you mentioned that you started with actually heavier load. Um, and I like that because one of the other progressions you have is velocity and moving into these faster movements, uh, maybe more powerful movements. So for you is actually faster velocity is more of the progression versus yeah. actually higher resistance. Yes. Uh, there is a delineation on this, you know, so again, if we're, if we're talking about that developmental window, kids that are 15 to 18, um, I'm probably going to slightly prioritize or preferentiate that conventional progressive overload model. Once we get beyond that point, it, it is absolutely more driven by velocity um, as, as somebody who is, you know, I, I guess an injury person or specialist or whatever. Um, I'm always subconsciously thinking about you know the fact that most connective tissue injuries don't occur because excessive force is applied they occur because the the athlete or the tissue doesn't have the amount of time to respond to the load so it's not just purely a force problem it's the ability to respond to the force that's being applied so velocity is the ultimate factor for most connective tissue injuries non-contact connective tissue injuries and I think that with the the athletes that are kind of in that, you know, 18 and up or 24 and up or whatever range, um, most of them don't have a force problem. Most of them have a velocity problem. So we want to focus on being able to accentuate the demands for velocity. And again, being able to integrate the body as opposed to just pure force expression or output. Nice. Well said. So, so sometimes progression is going to be that resistance side and sometimes that progression is going to be that uh, velocity yeah. side yeah and to simplify that too like because we've all seen this we all know this person right you think about like your um you know your 45 year old dude who grew up lifting weights in the 70s 80s reading flex magazine um you you have them do a set of whatever squat or press or whatever with an empty barbell and it looks 
awful. It's uncomfortable. It looks terrible. And, you know, they just feel, you know, almost like a fish out of water. And then you put 135 on and all of a sudden it cleans it right up. That is a big indicator that that person needs to do more connective tissue based loading, because what that is showing is that they require either compression or external stability, extrinsic stability to be able to create internal tension. So those are individuals where they don't have any problems with, with, you know, compound structural loading. They have problems being able to load with motion. So you have them do some of these, you know, curtsy cable lateral lunges, you know, Kaiser push pulls and transfer presses. Um, and it will absolutely strain that. It will be very challenging for them. Those are the individuals that really need this the most. And, and I think, you know, on a, on a lesser scale, um, speaking in generality here, um, elite level athletes very rarely have insufficient exposure to high force loading. Much more frequently, they have zero experience, light or sub-maximal loading with dynamic actions, with velocity, and doing this in a multitude of different ways. So that's really kind of where I hone in on. Awesome. And I'm thinking about some of the exercises that you had mentioned. Let's just go to chops here for a second. Um, from a programming standpoint, what kind of sets and rep ranges do you like to prescribe for these types of exercises? And I understand yeah. it could it could vary based on the adaptation you're seeking, but in general, yeah. Hey, we're starting off with an individual and, and I want to get to be able to use my coach's eye and watch them. And what are you looking at? Yeah, nothing crazy, man. Um, you know, for most of the accessory block, um, you know, to include stuff like this, somewhere between two and four sets, somewhere between six and 10 reps. Um, you know, it's not going to deviate too much, uh, for the accessory block, what will change or what will be, um, more of the, the, uh, focused training parameters here are going to be what are the tempo applications and then what is the complexity level. Um, so, you know, a generic kind of model that I follow here is week one, we're just doing the movement to do the movement. Week two, we're going to do all the accessory options with a three second eccentric week, uh, weeks two and three, rather weeks four and five, we're going to do isometric applications. So, three second eccentrics first two weeks, three second isometrics next two weeks, then we'll go to two weeks. Uh, if there's somebody who is really struggling with this and not, you know, really picking up the patterns, uh, we'll do a combo. So we'll do a three, three, one, uh, three second eccentric, three second isometric, and then one second concentric. Um, but for athletes that, you know, don't have that issue, now we're just going to go to two weeks of a reactive tempo. So we're just going to, you know, kind of move fast um, both directions. And then I'll come back around, repeat that same six week uh, progression, but we'll do it with five seconds instead of three seconds. Great. Thank you for that. And and one more question regarding uh, these exercises and, and the practical uh, examples that you've been providing in terms of complexity, do you ever experiment with things such as like eyes closed or any sort of audible cues? I think experiment is the, the best word that I could, I could say, um, I'll do some eyes closed, uh, you know, and, and almost like, uh, like change, like the other one that I'll use a lot is like changing the surface. Right. So if, you know, sometimes we'll be on the, on the platform, on the hardwood, sometimes it'll be on the turf. Um, sometimes I'll have a, a wedge or a slant board. So we're biasing, uh, you know, either pronation or supination. Um, and then doing things like, uh, you know, dribbling a tennis ball or maybe playing pass. Like, I don't think that those things are like, 
necessarily groundbreaking. I just think that it's a good stimulus and a good, you know, again, kind of layer that we can add into things for things like chops, you know, core patterns, RDLs and, and accessory blocks, not as much. Um, I think my experimental side goes more to things like offset loading, um, doing a, a combination of static and, and accommodating resistance, um, and then doing things with different foot patterns or pressurizations at the foot. Uh, changing hand position is also another one that, you know, is, is a lot more influential than people sometimes think. Um, changing the implement that we're using. So those are probably more of my experimental things. Um, but the vestibular stuff, the eyes closed stuff, you know, I'll, I'll relegate that more to just kind of like, you know, movement prep, warm up, stim you know, sensory stimulation types of things. Um, and then working from that. Awesome. Thank you for the detail on all that. And for anybody that is listening, you can look at Danny's article on Simply Faster or check out his Round Rock Strength YouTube page or make sure to give him a follow on social media. You can see more of these videos and, and some of these things that he was describing. In terms of educating your clients on the importance of core training, what do you find that to be a part of the conversations you're having uh, during training, maybe pre-training or post? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, for an athlete population, the, the selling point or the buy-in point that I usually lead with is, you know, this is the type of stuff that will help you express what you already have. Um, if, if I have an all pro pass rusher or, you know, offensive lineman, like they're strong as hell, man, I, they're, they're, I'm not going to really get much more out of you, um, from a pure strength, pure power standpoint. But if I can improve your, your connective tissue quality, if we can, you know, improve the integration of myofascial lines, then all of that robust strength that you already have, you can tap into that a little bit better, or a little bit easier. Um, the efficiency of movement is another one. So like, you know, going back to our pitcher example, um, you know, Hey man, if we, if we can improve this, this core strength and these pat, you know, these patterns, um, it, it won't necessarily take you from 93 to 96. Um, but it will allow you to access 93 easier and, uh, more consistently and doing so without tearing your elbow up. Right. Because a, a you know, major, major. Um, factor for something like a Tommy John's injury is that the the elbow is is being stressed more than it's capable of because the adjacent parts aren't doing necessarily what they should be doing. So if I can help you to improve that integration, it will take stress off the elbow. You won't have to miss a year of baseball, and it'll give you a better opportunity, um, you know, to play in the Big Twelve or SEC or whatever. Right. So those are probably the big cues with um more the general population, uh, you know, Hey, are you tired of needing 40 minutes every morning to get your back going? And, you know, do, are you tired of constantly feeling like your, your hip flexors are tight or your hamstrings are tight? Um, well, this stuff will help you, uh, to alleviate those things. So, you know, usually I just kind of put it back on the athlete or back on the individual identify or, or kind of pick on, you know, what they have reported to be, um, you know, their pressing issues and their limitations, and then just kind of tying those two ends together. Right. Fantastic. And um, I've come to understand that you're actually working on your massage therapy license. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I'm actually, I think I start up next week or the week after. So like really just getting going. Yep. All right. So how do you kind of foresee yourself integrating that into your practice? 
I'm really excited, man. Um, I, when I finished my master's, I swore up and down I would never set foot in a classroom ever again. Um, I was done with it. I didn't need any more textbooks. Um, and here I am five years later. But um, no, I, I think it's going to be very invigorating for me to to get the fundamental skill um, that I do not have. I've, I've done a handful of um you know, kind of select certifications and, 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 you know, some of the different things out here and have applied them in my own way and gotten some use out of these concepts. But um, now being able to, you know, again, kind of understand the fundamentals and the foundations of this, being able to improve a skill set and, you know, for the work that I'm doing now, which, uh, you know, again, is, is just almost exclusively driven by injury. Um, it's, it's become very abundantly clear to me that this is an important part of this model. Um, so I think it will help amplify uh, not just my versatility and skill set that I can utilize, but also becoming more efficient with how I'm applying things. Um, and I'm excited to see how it, it integrates. That's great. Well, good luck on your journey with that. And yeah. welcome back. Welcome back to the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> um, hopefully there's some more practical experience with that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so kind of two more questions to finish up here. Uh, what does your own training look like when you walk into the gym or you maybe finally have the time and the day to, to do your own training? What does that look like? Are you kind of experimenting, having fun? Um, are you very regimented on your training program? Man, I was very regimented for the longest time. Uh, and then I decided to, uh, you know, upend my whole family and, and, you know, day-to-day -day structure to move my pregnant wife across the country, um, and had a baby. So, uh, regimented and routine are out the window. Um, you know, being, uh, I guess more in the entrepreneurial sense now, um, the, like they always say, you know, you quit your nine to five, you get a 24 seven. Um, I'm starting to feel that a little bit. I feel like I'm always working, but never working at the same time. Um, I'll say this much, man, we put together a very nice little home gym. Um, when we moved down here, and I thought that that was going to be predominantly for work excursions. And that was the best decision I ever made and has absolutely saved my training. So I do, I, I essentially have four primary compound lifts that, that I, you know, really try to push on and, and, and really try to overload. Um, I'm going to split squat. I'm going to press, I'm going to pull, um, and I'm going to clean. And then outside of those things, I do a lot of plyos. Um, I, I'll bound, I'll jump, I'll, I'll hit, I'll hop, I'll skip, I'll sprint. Um, and then from there, that's where it usually kind of shifts into more of like, who am I working with? What are their problems? Okay, let me try this little, you know, three station series out um, and just try to sweat, you know, uh, being on this side of 30. Um, that's one change I've had in my training is like, I probably train in the conventional sense three or four days a week, but I try to exercise every day. So I got a beautiful uh, turf field right up at the top of my street um, that, you know, fortunately has public access to. So, you know, a couple of days a week, I'll just go down and, and you know, do some running, do some sprinting um, and just try to at least have a, a 20 to 40 minute period where my heart rate's elevated almost every day. Awesome. Thank you for that. And Last question here. I know you're you're newer to the Dallas area and Fort Worth area. You got a favorite barbecue spot yet? Yep. Uh Rudy's 100%. <laughs> um it, it was uh 
kind of the aligning of the stars for, you know, when we were moving down here, I, I flew down for a day and literally had like five hours to find a house. Um, so I met the realtor early in the morning. We go through the process and, uh, you know, see all the houses and everything. And then we go to this uh, barbecue place called Rudy's to go through all the documents and everything like that. Well, my dog, who is more important to me than everyone in the world to include my wife. Um, well, I guess he's now 1A, 1B with my daughter. I'll say that much um his name is Rudy so when we got to the barbecue place and I and I saw the name I was like okay well this is now the universe calling me I have to move here um and it was a wrap ever since so um it's it's very uh I, I will say of all of the things that you hear about Dallas and about Texas uh three things are absolutely true uh number one football is life number two the traffic sucks number three barbecue is distinctly better than anywhere else i've been the brisket it's fantastic the brisket's different in texas i live in austin for two years um and and i live in texas for sure so i would say i agree with you on all three uh but for sure the brisket is is game yeah it's it's totally different now being that i'm from virginia beach and on and you know lived on the atlantic ocean my whole life the seafood out here is trash so it's a a distinct trade-off um but seafood in texas is garbage (laughs) that's great well incredible danny thank you so much for joining me today on the kaiser human performance podcast Appreciate your time and willingness to provide insights on core training. It was a really excellent episode, so I appreciate your time. To stay up to date on Coach Danny and Rude Rock Strength, you can visit his social media pages and his YouTube page, which we will include in the episode notes. Thank you for listening and have a great day. We appreciate you tuning in to this episode of the Kaiser Human Performance Podcast. To stay up to date on all things Kaiser, Follow us at Kaiser Fitness on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For more content, you can visit our Kaiser Fitness YouTube page and at our website, www.kaiser.com. Thank you and have a great day.